Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life, a broadcast of Purdue University Extension, where we cut through the hype, explore the science behind food and nutrition, and provide practical tips for incorporating healthful strategies into everyday life. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. We were joined a couple weeks ago by Josh Gruber from Ball State University. He shared with us the importance of creating a sustainable food system. You might remember he shared that it is very difficult to define what a sustainable food system really means. So when doing a quick Google search for a definition, I learned that a sustainable food system provides healthy food to people and creates a sustainable environment, economy, and social system that surrounds food. Sustainable food systems start with the development of sustainable agriculture practices, development of more sustainable food distribution systems, creation of sustainable diets, and reduction of food waste throughout the system. Josh and I spoke at length about food hubs and from the dish or from the definition of food distribution system. These food hubs are able to respond to community needs by working together to create a supply chain for these mid-level farmers. Food hubs can help increase the access to local foods for larger volume buyers. They can help local farmers sell more of their products and they can coordinate distribution and delivery. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about the purchasing of those local foods, possibly from food hubs or other local vendors. And I'm joined today by a Montgomery County local, Lolly Hess. She is the caterer, owner, operator of the Juniper Spoon. And um, I'm excited to talk to her today because she does the majority of her business with local producers. But I also have a special place in my heart because she catered my wedding. Um, so I do know firsthand all about the delicious creations she can make. So Lolly, do you want to uh, give a little the listeners a little bit more information about yourself and your business? Sure. Uh, I started the Juniper Spoon in 2004 and the uh, the mission from the beginning is still the mission today, um, and that is um, to position my business um, as an integral part of a local food system, in this case, the West Central Indiana region. Um, we, I have a background in organic horticulture, and so not only do we source from area um, producers, but we also have a garden and we grow a lot of our vegetables, fruits, and herbs that we use in our catering as well. Awesome. And so then what percentage of those goods are purchased from local vendors um, that you try to use in your catering or gardened right there in your backyard? You know, I don't have a good percentage of, of, of our own garden because, <laughs> because you know, uh, I'm not data driven and sometimes we just run out to the garden to harvest something and bring it back in and we don't weigh it. So a lot comes from our garden, um, a lot, especially when the cucumbers are coming on pretty heavy. Uh, so, um, however, you know, it's, it's less than an acre garden. I would say it's probably, probably a half acre. Um, so obviously we have to source other places. We try to keep our percentage of, um, locally purchased foods at about 65%. Uh, which is pretty good for Indiana. I think um, I heard somewhere that in order to consider yourself, um, you know, a farm to table establishment, you need to purchase around 20% of your, um, your foods locally. So we're quite a bit higher than that. Um, and, you know, that's not only from Montgomery County, but also surrounding counties. And then um, we also include Michigan and Illinois in that as well. 
Okay, good. I was wondering where you said uh, West Central, so I wasn't sure what that included. And so do you have the access to a food hub or anything like that to do your purchasing? Or do you get to go make relationships <laughs> with each individual farmer to purchase oh, those local well, foods? In 19 years, it's changed so much. <laughs> there were no food hubs when I started this. And so I was going around to um, anyone, even a backyard gardener that I could find that raised anything. I started at the farmer's market, which was at that time uh, on the courthouse square in Montgomery County, very small a farmer's market. And I would go to each, each of the vendors and find out what do you grow? How can you grow more? How can I buy from you? And I was going and picking up at their farms um, every week. Um, things started to change probably in the, um, you know, around 2010. I feel like there was a, a shift where the idea of food hubs was, you know, started to gain some traction. Um, there, There's a food hub, uh, this old farm um, up in Colfax, and there were just a few others that we were started to be able to purchase from. Um, and then even some of our farmers were starting to buy in order to have successful CSAs. Some of our farmers were purchasing from other farmers. So by just going to one farm, we could maybe buy from three farms. I don't know if they would have called themselves a hub necessarily, but it was just um, the, the growing process, the growing pains of creating distribution in, in a market where there wasn't distribution established other than farmer's markets that, you know, were just sort of ad hoc. Each town had their own farmer's market. And so, um, and now, you know, our main distributor is Piazza Produce and they have a local branch, um, which I forget how many years ago that started. <clears throat> it's pretty recent. But we buy a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, we buy a lot from from that. So we always, when we're buying from Piazza, we always check to see if they have a local alternative. Um, and then um, some of our meat distributors also sell other things. Um, and then like Four Seasons Market uh, downtown in Crawfordsville, I don't know if you would consider them a hub. They're a retail establishment, but we can order through them for things like, um, you know, larger quantities of barbecue sauce or mustard or things like that that we use. Yeah. And I remember uh, it's been several years, but I ran into you at the farmer's market one day purchasing food for, for some catering service. And you mm -hmm. mentioned like, I don't do this because it's easy. And so I know that this, um, this passion of yours to purchase foods from local is not always easy, um, but it does appear that consumer demand for local foods is increasing. And there was a study in 2014 um, from the USDA that shared um, that over there's been an over 400% growth in local foods uh, from farm to school and school programs. There's a nearly 300% growth in regional food hubs. Um, and then there's almost a 200% increase in the farmer's market since 2007. So why is it that you've chosen to go this more challenging route? Um, and is it because of these trends? I think it sounds like you started maybe a little bit before the trend was going that yeah. way. Um, so what is it that made you choose to go with local vendors for your business? Well, I'm gonna go back to those numbers that you that you shared a little bit ago. So I'm not surprised to hear those numbers, but when you're starting from zero, you can get that kind of huge gain very quickly. Um, I think it's gonna be more interesting the next time the data comes out. What's been happening in the last three years, what's gonna happen in the next five years? Because now there are a few more established 
distribution um, avenues for local foods. And so is that where are we going to continue seeing that trend of increase or is it going to stagnate? Um, so yeah, there was, you know, we went from basically zero distribution when I started my business. And when I mean zero, I mean, I had to go to farmers markets and people were deciding to go to farmers markets with just what was in their backyard. There was no regulations. Um, I did not. Yeah, you're right. I didn't do this because it was easy. Um, in fact, <laughs> yeah, it's um, the amount of time that goes into researching and finding and then developing those relationships with farmers, um, farmers who are very good at growing but not necessarily good at selling or communicating, and then who don't have time to deliver, so I'm doing all the picking up, you know, that <clears throat> it really made for a very challenging business model. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, although I can say that I wouldn't do what I was doing if it weren't for the local aspect. I, I do like my job, I love catering, but I would find it not interesting if I was just getting everything from a distributor and there was nothing coming from local farms. Um, it wouldn't have the, I need the mission in order to love what I'm doing, right? Um, <clears throat> so I guess I chose it because, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up in a, in a home where we did know where, all, where a lot of our food came from. So my, I grew up in a Mennonite community um, and my grandparents on all sides farmed and uh, my mom and dad really kept a lot of those traditions at home. So we had family meals, we had a garden, my dad composted, my mom put up a lot of food. She would find orchards and buy stuff and then we'd make applesauce and freeze it. And so she bought her eggs from an Amish farmer. It, you know, this is in the 70s and 80s where the, those, um, you know, that wasn't really a thing that people did. Um, we, we did go to grocery stores, but I felt like the food I ate was, I was very connected to it. And then I kind of had this, like, you know, I left home and realized that that's not really how the Food Network was in the rest of the world. So I was a little shocked at how disconnected I was once I was out of the house. Like, I realized, oh, what, how am I, how do I do this? If I don't have a garden, I live in an apartment. I don't have any relationships. I was far from home. And as I started to look around and travel, I realized that, you know, there were very few places where people were directly connected with their food sources. Um, I did have an opportunity to travel to Ecuador. I lived there for a year um, when I was 19. And it was interesting to see there were a lot of very close connections with people and their, and their food. That was really exciting to me. But at the same time, there were a lot of larger corporations who were coming in, buying large areas, um, buying out small farmers, small subsistence farmers, and that was to take care of the growing need in developed countries, right? So I was seeing like, okay, this is actually, this connection is actually something that's disappearing <clears throat> because of um, the way our food system in the United States is set up now, which is very disconnected. You know, so I had to kind of grapple with that, you know, the disconnect with what I grew up with and then what was reality. And I thought, you know what, I think I want to put my life work into um, 
some sort of helping to be part of a positive food system. Not that I had any power to do anything, but I wanted to, I wanted my life to, to work in that direction. And so that's how I started out in organic horticulture. Cause I thought, well, I'll just, I'll produce and then people can buy locally, but you, you know, you have to be a good farmer to <laughs> make that happen. And, um, you know, I don't think that was my forte. Um, especially the scaling up I just wasn't I didn't have the the, the experience or the the quality of, to be able to scale up and be able to do that so yeah going into food production seemed like a better way well I can attest to that your skills in food production are very good so and I appreciate that uh, story because that's a similar um, passion I guess of mine and how I uh, got into my field is that I went, I grew up on a farm and I went to Purdue. And as I'm sitting there, I'm realizing how no one understands where their food comes from. I'm in a dietetic class with all of these people who are supposed to be experts on food. And they, yes, they did not have that connection uh, to their food. So then that became a passion of mine. And my uh, desire to work in extension is to be able to help uh, bring people that connection back to their food. So um, I appreciate that. Uh, you mentioned earlier to the uh, maybe creative side that you get to have with uh, creating this food and maybe the route you went this way. And so we've talked a lot during um, our other episodes about making sure you're eating a balanced plate. Um, and so it's always, it's never about cutting out a certain food group or anything like that. We need to have all of our food groups um, all the time. And we've mentioned several times too that Indiana is landlocked, so we don't have access to fish. So how do we get fish? But we have seasons. Um, so I imagine the seasons maybe help you have some creativity in your business, but how, is that one of the biggest challenges? And then how do you combat that challenge? Um. I, I don't know if I would call it a challenge. I mean, certainly living in a place where we have seasons, um, it, it causes us to um, be more creative and then also to appreciate um, the bounty of summer when we have it um, <laughs> and take advantage of that time. So what I try to do with my clients is um, create menus for them. I try to take a lead role in menu creation for my clients. I don't necessarily say, here, pick something off a menu. Um, I try to have um, my hands on it so that I can suggest in the wintertime that we're doing roasted root vegetables and um, using maybe a product that we froze in the summer and have available um, you know, in the wintertime then in our store. There also, you know, there's quite a few products that are available in winter from Indiana, like tomatoes, for instance. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the company from Elwood. Red Gold? Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we have right here a, a company that, that hires farmers to grow tomatoes in Indiana and then process them. So all our tomatoes that we use, other than the fresh ones in the summer, are from Red Gold. Um, so a lot of it is, you know, menu creation that makes sense for the season and then taking advantage of the summer to put up as much as we can to freeze as much as we can so that we can use it later. Yes. And if we're eating seasonally, we're eating, you mentioned, uh, root vegetables in the wintertime. And so 
I don't know about you, but I'm not, besides a potato, I don't do that great of a job of eating root vegetables <laughs> at all, but it's especially all year long. And so when we're eating seasonally, it's kind of forcing us to eat some of those vegetables maybe throughout the year, um, giving us different nutrients. Um, but also, I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen it on um, your plates. I'm sure I have. Um, but sometimes there's things like purple tomatoes or purple cauliflower. Um, so we get different nutrients from these local seasonal foods than you would from what we typically find as white cauliflower or red cauliflower or red tomatoes, I mean, um, in the grocery store. Um, you mentioned to freezing. And so one way too is we harvest them at the peak of ripeness when they're local. And so when we're getting them from California or wherever, they maybe were harvested green and then um, ripened with ethylene gas. And so we're not getting that peak of ripeness um, and all those flavors and nutrients from that stuff. Um, I also like to promote seasonality for the um, money you might save at the register. Um, and so lots of times the food that we're buying in season is cheaper. I don't know, I bought some strawberries recently and it's not strawberry season. Um, so they were a bit expensive and also not as good as normal. Um, but one other thing too, and I think this is really what you're showing us, is that a study conducted by Western Michigan found that 68% of money that was spent at local businesses stays in the community. So when you go shop with a local farmer, shop, cater with Lolly, uh, we're keeping 68% of that money here versus if you went to a larger box store, uh, 43% of that money is staying here. And that's because Lolly, like you've described here, you're buying from uh, local farmers, you're buying from local vendors, as opposed to going out to those um, larger places. Um, those people also tend to make charitable investments in our community and that sort of thing. So do you have any experience with um, seeing some of that impact? Oh, oh, for sure. And that that is also a big driver of what I do. When I'm um, writing a check directly out to a farmer, <clears throat> I'm, you know, I know that there's not going to be a cut to um you know many people along middle, middlemen along the way um so that that money 100 percent of it will go directly to the farmer um now with when i order through a hub that's not necessarily the case however there is still a much higher percentage that's going to the farmer than if i were to go to the grocery store and buy something from california um and so yeah i i um i think last year no that that was the pandemic year. The year before, um, I think we figured out that $70,000 went into our local economy from my business. It's not, That's it doesn't incredible. seem like a whole lot, but it does, you know, it does help. We know that there are farmers who are dependent on us um, in part for their success. And that, that makes me feel super great, <laughs> you know? I just think 70,000 sounds incredible. I mean, that could be like one person's salary just staying right here in Montgomery yeah. County. Uh, so yeah. you, you said earlier you had no power. I think you have more power than um, you thought you did when you started out this business and making an impact in our community. Um, local food markets are driven though by that consumer demand and buyer demand. Um, and we talked some with Josh about the global food system and you kind of mentioned it there too um, with your experience in Ecuador and how maybe our global food system uh, isn't meeting the needs of everyone and having that connection to food. And so the global food system really um, prioritizes buying low cost uh, uniform items and mass quantity, while the local food really um, 
does not value that. <laughs> they value that connection, like you mentioned. Um, they also are asking for things like a local, sustainable, fresh, among many other things you mentioned, organic. Um, so how do you think local food growers and buyers are able to meet these demands? Um, and what is it that you think is the driving change for going from that um, global food system more to the local food that we're seeing right now? Well, I wish I had the answer to that, because if I did, then, um, you know, we would make a, an instantaneous switch, right? But, um, you know, I feel like that's been my life work since I was in my early 20s. Like, how, how do we make that switch happen? Um, a big part of it, um, you know, I don't necessarily think it's anything that the farmers can do, or they are not the ones that necessarily need to be responsible for making that change. Um, I think the consumers need to make that change. And a lot of it has to do with um, value and what we value. And so, um, you know, value can mean many different things, but in the last 40, 50 years, it has really come to mean the lowest price. Um, and so we have value city and great value. And, you know, that's a tagline to indicate that you're going to be getting the lowest price for something. And so I hear people, you know, we have these flyers that come in the newspaper showing us how cheap something is at the grocery store. Um, if, if we as individuals and then collectively as a community can begin to see how the savings that I get, my savings don't necessarily reflect the health of my community, you know, then we can start making those changes. So yes, I might be paying a little bit more for corn if I'm getting it from, you know, holes down the road from me um, than at the grocery store, but the value is going to be much greater for the community. Um, and then, like, I mean, and you're on the dietary end, so health and wellness and all of those things too. Um, but it is it is a challenge, and I think podcasts like yours are going to help a lot. And, um, you know, the numbers you spouted earlier about the increase, I think we're seeing that happen. Um, but I'm hopeful that um, I'm hopeful that the, the trend will continue and, and no longer be a trend, that it will be just the, the shift in the network will change so that we think about going to the farmer's market first and then supplement at the grocery store. Think about going to the local food hub first and then supplement at the big box store so that we are prioritizing that. And I appreciate that you said uh, the health of the community will increase with local foods. And like you said, I'm in dietary. So people automatically think like nutrition health. But I mean, we've already talked about the economic health of the community by doing local that 68% of it stays here. I think another big component is that environmentally friendly. I, I think a driving force is that people believe. Uh, I don't necessarily have the statistics in front of me or anything if it is more environmentally friendly. But in that definition that we talked uh, that I said at the very beginning, we mentioned food waste. And so food waste is a huge contributor to um, our environmental impact uh, from just what it takes to produce our food and then the fact that we're throwing it away. And so uh, North Americans wasted 250 pounds of food per year on average, and that's per person. 
<laughs> not just like everybody, 250 pounds of food per person on average. And that was them bringing it home from the grocery store or wherever they purchased it and throwing it away. This wasn't any loss from the farmers, the grocery stores or anything. This was everybody's own um, waste at home. And so I think that buying local can possibly help us um, in reducing that food waste because you're not having that additional waste maybe from grocery stores um, and producers. But also maybe you're doing more buying with thought because of that increased price. So when food is so cheap, you tend to just buy it up. And sometimes it's encouraged, you know, buy to get one free or whatever. Um, and so we don't always need that. So you can buy with more thought when um, you're buying locally because maybe those sales aren't there. I guess nutritionally, we can make sure we're only serving enough of what people need. So uh, don't put more on your plate because once you put it on your plate, if you don't eat it, it goes in the trash. But if it's still in the pan, you can save it for the next day and have leftovers and things like that. Um, but our restaurants also, I think, contribute to that quite a bit by their um, large portions uh, they serve us. And I typically get mine in a to-go box and then leave it on the table uh, and forget I ever <laughs> <laughs> took a box with me. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about the, um, you know, if you're paying more for something, you're going to take better care of it. And that goes back to the value. Um, you know, food was not as cheap as it is now in the 1950s and 1960s. Like the, um, the percentage, I don't have those numbers, but the percentage of our income of what we pay for food at the grocery store is much, much less now than it was um, 60, 70 years ago. Um, so, you know, with subsidies and a, a, um, a, that number has decreased. So we do think of food as a bit of a throwaway item. And I mean, I'm, I'm prone to it. I saw avocados for <laughs> 47 cents a piece at Kroger and I was like, I need 10 of these. And, you know, I, I didn't need 10 of them. <laughs> They're still in my fridge. Um, so we all do it. I am definitely prone to overbuying. Um, you know, at our, our business, at the Juniper Spoon, one of the things that we're very careful about is food waste. And we compost 100% um, of our food scraps, um, except for um, meat. We don't really want to do that. But non-meat items, we, we do have a really large food composting system um, right outside of the kitchen. And that, at least I know that from the kitchen perspective, we are not throwing away food and contributing to that. Um, the, the other way that local foods is going to, um, you know, be more environmentally friendly is that we're not using the amount of fossil fuel in trucking and, and distribution. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's, and you know, another thing that we didn't even talk about yet is, um, empowering people in the community to have their own gardens. You know, if, if we're used to, um, eating fresh local foods, then what's to keep you from growing a tomato plant in your backyard? And so that that cuts down even more. And it's more delicious. I always say every time I have lettuce or something for my own garden, I'm like, why has this lettuce lasted forever in my refrigerator and not turned brown like immediately after opening the package? Um, and that's because of that. Like you said, we use less fossil fuels, so things aren't traveling as far. So they're not um, ripening and rotting uh, upon delivery as opposed to I just harvest it and now I get two weeks to eat it instead of maybe a few days. So very good. Um, 
maybe one area that we could see a benefit of our um, inexpensive food chain uh, would be to those who um, are on a fixed income or limited income. And in part of that sustainable food system, it said providing healthy foods to people. And Josh really mentioned this a lot because that is the food hub he's working with in uh, Muncie. That's their mission is to really help feed the insecure. And so food insecurity is a very real problem here in America. I heard people recently saying like, oh, this is a new buzzword. And it's really not. This word has been around for a while. <laughs> um, but according to Indiana's Emergency Food Resource Networks, approximately 14% of Indiana households were considered food insecure in 2011 and 13. And this is defined by three or more reported indications of food access problems that resulted in diet quality reduction, um, but did not substantially affect the quantity of food. And so I think that is really key in this um, this definition is that we're not only talking about how much food someone gets, we're talking about the quality of that food. And so someone really can be malnourished. I can attest to this as a dietitian. Someone could be malnourished and still have plenty of access to food, be in a calorie surplus, but they're not getting that quality food, those nourishing uh, nutrients. So do you see the local food system being able to address these social needs in our communities with food insecure families, food access, maybe even food deserts. I know we have some of those here in Montgomery County. <laughs> we do have food deserts in Montgomery County. Um, yeah, and when I go into you know the dollar stores that are popping up everywhere around the county, there's no fresh food, um, and you know not that packaged foods or canned foods are a problem, but they do, they have an increase in sodium and, you know, it's not fresh food. It's not whole food. Um, and, you know, it, it's a huge problem. I, I love the idea of getting local foods into schools so that young kids um, grow up with eating fresh foods and local foods as a normal, it's normalizing it for them. It's very hard when you're an adult to make changes. You know, we get used to a certain way of eating, a certain way of buying, a certain way of budgeting. This is what I can afford. This is where I can go to get it. But if our kids are eating cherry tomatoes in school and carrot sticks and they're getting to meet a farmer, that is normalized to them so that then when they are out of school, they might seek those things out. It's a long process, I, I think. And um, the sooner we can get local foods into the schools, I, the better, although that is very difficult because there's a lot of dietary regulations on that. Um, there's not a lot of money available. Some school systems are successfully doing that, and we see there's a garden at Nicholson right now, so that's fantastic. Um, there is a group in town who is, um, you know, has done some work on that. But also um, community gardens, you know, that's not a, a new idea either. Um, having community gardens that are within walking distance to to people. You know, if it's on the outside of town, it, it will attract a certain group of people. And if it's right in the middle of a food desert, it will attract another um, population of people. Those are also hard to do. You know, you require land and a lot of work and a lot of volunteers and equipment. Um, so And don't forget the weeding. <laughs> oh my gosh, the weeding. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is, too. But I do feel like, um, you know, in the time that I've been in Montgomery County, I have seen an increase of availability of Whole Foods. Um, so that is that's encouraging to see, um, and I hope we can continue to do that. And podcasts like this, programs like the local foods programs. Um, there's a urban. Um, 
there's a, um, an urban gardening um, uh, group that's starting up with the Soil and Water Conservation District. So I know that there are groups that are dedicating themselves to um, trying to reduce the food deserts. And so um, we start. We moved into the strategies to help this. And so um, one strategy I know that is available is to start a local food council. And so are you a member of a local food council? And if you're not or um, want to tell others, how could they help start a local food council to really help make these changes in their communities? Uh, yeah, I am part of a local food council. Um, it is now um, has annexed with sustainable initiatives. So sustainable initiatives of Montgomery County is um, it, it it tackles not only local foods, but that is its primary uh, purpose is to um, support um, a number of activities and, and um, practices in the county um, that will help in the local foods network. Um, you know, it's, you know, with the internet, it's not hard to find those groups in your area. Um, starting one is a little harder, but anyone can do it. And that's what we did. It was a group of concerned citizens who just sort of got in touch through a number of conversations that you run into someone and start talking and why aren't we doing this? And pretty soon you have a meeting and then, you know, that meeting grows. And um, we started ours, the local food summit a few years ago by, um, we call ourselves the local food summit because the only thing we did was created a summit. <laughs> we didn't know what else to do, but basically it was the idea of, you know, gathering people and learning, um, asking farmers questions, asking consumers questions. What can we do? What is the need? Bringing in the school system, um, the, 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 um, the nutritionist, the superintendents, so, you know, I can't say that there has been a huge amount of um, success in that we don't now have 100% local foods in the schools or anything like that, but the effort is there, the interest is growing, um, and the ideas are churning, and projects are happening. We have a wonderful community garden in, our, in, in Crawfordsville, um, and a very, very vibrant downtown farmer's market. So I, I do think it's possible and I think it's necessary more than anything. I think it's necessary that people have these conversations, get the interest there. And like you said, everyone has to start somewhere. Uh, impact and change doesn't happen immediately. So you've had this food summit, uh, you're gaining interest and traction um, in the subject. And over time, that interest and traction will gain more people and more impacts. And so before we wrap up, are there any other tips that you have um, to help people maybe increase their local food consumption, be able to get more local foods in their community? We spoke a lot about the resources available through Purdue Extension um, with Josh, but is there any other websites? Uh, do you have Instagram, social media that you want to share with people to have them uh, look into more info on this subject? Just the personal standpoint, if you ask yourself the question, you know, I have my grocery list. What of these things can I get locally? Meat, eggs, cheeses, maple syrup, honey, even in the wintertime, starting there. How do I get those? Here's a resource on this website that I can look. I can make some phone calls. Yes, it takes time, but once you've made that first phone call, once you've figured out how to include a stop on your way, that just becomes part of your daily routine, right? 
stopping doing your shopping on Saturday, so you stop by the farmer's market first. Hitting Four Seasons local market to pick up your meat before going over to Kroger. Um, so just some changes in practice um, and realizing that your dollar has a lot more value when you spend it locally. Um, and then, um, of course, if you want to hire a caterer that utilizes local products, um, you know, that is, that is our mission and what we try to do, whether the recipient is aware of it or not, is that they will be eating something in every dish that is coming from Indiana. Um, and then also seeking out other, you know, restaurants, grocery stores, um, caterers, any institution um, or business that features local products, go ahead and put your money there, you know. And I think you mentioned stopping at those local places first before going to the grocery store, but many grocery stores have also included an Indiana grown section. Uh, so the statewide initiative there has really helped with providing maybe some local foods um, in our grocery stores as well. I love Indiana Grown and I look for that label. I really do. It's great. And um, yeah, I'm always happy to see the Indiana section at grocery stores and I try to support those businesses. And then, you know, sometimes I run into with my work, sometimes I'll run into at a, at a trade show or something like that, the person who actually owns the shop that makes that salsa or that mustard or barbecue sauce or something. And it's so exciting to, you know, have a face with them. You know, these are our neighbors. These are our, these are Hoosiers and they are just trying to make a living, making something amazing and delicious. And thankfully, Indiana Grown has really helped with that distribution. And they truly are making amazing and delicious foods. I think anything I've had from Indiana Grown is always good. Mustards are some of my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you, Lolly, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Bite by Bite, Nutrition for Life. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, remember to ask questions, challenge the myths, and stay true to you.